you're creative, you're crazy, you do not belong. I find success as a concept highly overrated because while failure allows you to move on, failure is pure discovery of yourself. And it dawned on me that all we have as creatives is our way of seeing the world. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Michael Knox, and Graham Drew. Two rather insecure frauds who'll be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. And then you add different languages, Spanish, Swedish, French, Catalan. It's like a melting pot of all sorts of random shit. Thanks, steve Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. I don't know if... Um... Andrew, you're aware, but at the end of every episode, when you say if there's anything you'd like to know more about the imposterous, please contact us via email that people actually have. And two two of those people, and one of our first requests, someone, and uh, I've forgotten the name, and Ben, I'll pass it on to you because you might want to follow them up after this, said you should speak to Ben Welsh on this subject. So here we are. And the other one was um, gave me a list of of a few names of which Ben's... um, was one. So welcome to the imposterous, Ben. Looking at your LinkedIn Hello. profile, because it's where we steal our introductions, <laughs> um, and, and looking at the work that, that you've created and the jobs that you've held, I'm going to say top jobs in the industry, particularly from a regional point of view and mention of inclusive um, leadership styles. And you've steered some great work for, you know, big work for, for big brands. Um, you know, the list of the awards is, is long and there's um, some fantastic work in there and we'll, we'll talk about that. But when we asked you to, if you'd be interested in coming on, following on the, you know, the viewers' requests, um, you were very enthusiastic and encouraging, saying this is a much-needed conversation. And I'm just wondering what it is about this subject of self-doubt, impostering, creativity that you think needs discussion. Um, thank you for all that. Michael, uh, very kind of you. I, um, I'm just wondering, I, I actually, before I got on, I was making a cup of tea, and before that, I was looking at the definition of imposter syndrome, just to be sure that I knew what it was, because I'd hate to be an imposter talking about imposter syndrome, as it were. And it's also slightly odd, when a show is sort of based on imposter syndrome, when someone suggests you be on it, it's kind of like, oh, all right. So I wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't all in my mind. It was real. Um, but why is it important? I think it's important because I mean, for, for myself, it's probably for myself that it's important as much as anything else. I'd, I'd never heard of the term, I don't know, till about 10 years ago. I remember my daughter was doing some homework and I think it came up then and I went, oh, what's that? And I I sort of read a little bit or she told me and I went, oh, oh, is that what it is? And then a friend of mine who's a very successful banker was saying one day, oh, thank God I haven't been found out yet. And he's he's phenomenally successful. So I've sort of like learned, learned of its existence that way. And I do think, I mean, who knows what's going on in other people's heads. I, I have a fair idea of people that I've worked with who, who, would, who would say this is something they, they encounter and then other people who definitely wouldn't. We, we're all brought up to believe there's a right answer, pretty much everything. Um, and when you get to what we do, 
there are many possible right answers and they could all be wrong answers too. So there's no, there is no right answer. And the first time in your life you're dealing with something where it's right because I say it's right or it's right because seven people who were paid $70 to sit around and chat about get some free food say it's right. So, it's, so suddenly there is no right nor wrong. So I would have thought it's inevitable that anyone in a position where they're having to make decisions, unless they are a complete narcissist, but the, it is at the very basis of what we do. And then I think the same is true of art. And if you think of anything avant-garde, it's always inevitably going to be wrong because it's nothing like anything that's been before. So you would, you would kind of feel like, well, shit, is this right? And then we look, as a result, I think we look for awards to tell us we were right. Um, and other, you know, shares in social media and your mates say, yeah, great, we put it on best ads and then suddenly, yeah, I was right. But nothing's ever right. Yeah, we've talked about this a bit that um, we, as an industry, will um, push for something better, that there's always a better idea out there. And, and that whole belief kind of fuels, you know, a, a lot of late nights that can fuel kind of a, a whole lot of uh, insecurity to the fact of, is this good enough? Um, and, and maybe it's just part of what makes people great is the, the pursuit of something better, that, you know, needing, needing that kind of, this is, this is good, um, being, having that reaffirmed is quite important to us so we can move on to the next thing. I mean, the funny thing is when you, when you feel like something is really good, it is something you feel, isn't it? You don't mm. get excited about it or you, you can look at it and rationally say, yeah, that, that answers everything. But unless you're excited, it's, it's nothing. So... Here's a fact. All vans look the same. Shapeless mobile toasters with the sex appeal of a loaf of white bread. So while other brands try to position their vans as something they're not, we launched the innovative new VW Crafter van for what it actually is. A white box on wheels. By being brutally honest about how people viewed vans, we could focus their attention on what really mattered to them. I, I would say, Ben, though, that I think that you you may have taken this a step further because I've a couple of comments you've made um, over the years that have really um, stuck with with me, and I just wanted to ask you about them. Is that you you've you've said that you're definitely not the best creative person that you know. When you've been asked about the secret to success, you say work with great people. So obviously, your importance that you place on people. Um, is, is very clear. Could I just know a bit more about that? Yeah, well, there are two things I read once. One was one of the founders of Netflix, who is, I think, the CEO, was saying that he felt he was doing his job well if he didn't have to do anything, because it meant he'd set everything up, he'd hired the right people, everything was just, it was like he was the engineer with this amazing engine and it was just humming. And so, and I, I thought that was a really interesting perspective. It's probably only when you own the company that you can have that perspective, because if you're just sitting around 
seemingly doing nothing, then people will ask questions. And then the other thing, many years ago, I read an article that Dave Trott had written where he compared his style of being a creative director with um, football, as in soccer. And he said, yeah, there are people, there are the strikers in the, of the industry up there who score goals, who excite crowds. He said he felt he was a back. He was a person at the back near the goalie whose job was to make sure that no goals went in. So his, 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 fundamental, his number one task was don't, don't fuck anything up. And then he went on to say he'd kick the ball up front to the people who, could, who were better at scoring goals. And I thought it was a very humble point of view. And I, I, I think, I, think I, like, I, I really like that. And you could also say you're not even on the field. You're actually a coach um, or manager. But those, both those models only work when you've got some amazingly good people. The thing about amazingly good people is they need to be left to be amazing. You need to create an environment where they can be amazingly good. And if you are, so that brings you down, like delegation. I don't know. People aren't very good at delegation. And that, this may also relate to imposter syndrome. Because if you, if you successfully delegate something to someone, then, then again, what are you going to do? So I, I learned to delegate. I, I got better. I think I got better at delegation and I got better at knowing who I could give things to and trust. But I'd learned very quickly that you, if you had given it to someone, you have to give it to them. You can't still hold on to it because then who's really ultimately responsible? And on that subject of helping people's careers, there's no doubt that you and the work that your teams have created have done that. Because when you talk about the fact of work with great people in some of the traits or some of the things that you've seen um, that you think make people great at this um well probably that's at the heart of this too so it's a great question it is that never satisfied like whether that's hunger or just never being satisfied i think you never stop believing that the, the best work is the next brief without hunger you will never push yourself enough you'll never you'll never reach the heights that you could um and without the ability to do it with other people, you won't, you won't survive. I, don't, I, I think if you're an arsehole, I don't think you'd be an arsehole anymore. Once upon a time, you could be. But <laughs> given, given the yeah. complexity of media channels and, and just what we do these days, you, you have to work with so many people. So that's um, th those, those three. I, I often thought charm... It's not essential, but it definitely helps. And I look at people who've done well. Um, I'd also argue selfishness. So how, how you can do that when you've got all the other things going on, I'm not sure. But you do have to be, you do have to be selfish and you do have to make sure that you, you make enough fuss to ensure that you do get the right briefs and you do have the best partner and you do have the best opportunities. And I, I look at people who've managed their careers well. I think they have been, they haven't waited for something. They've made it happen. They, they, they've just demanded things. Um, and then I think of other people who, who have amazing talent, 
we didn't really demand things and just waited for things and those things never happened. So I do think do you do need to um, you need to keep one eye on your career. And it's yeah. really hard to do that because we spend so much time talking about the work, the work, the work, the work. Optus, Australia's second largest telecoms provider, briefed us to improve the perception of their network. In response, we found an unlikely opportunity to confront one of our country's most infamous problems. Australia has the most fatal shark attacks in the world, four times more than any other country, and methods to deter sharks haven't changed in over 60 years. In 2014, the problem got so bad, the Western Australian government sanctioned the culling of all large sharks. Thousands of people have rallied against WA's shark cull policy. So we asked ourselves, could we use the Optus network to help protect our beachgoers and our sharks? Introducing Cleverboy, a smart ocean boy that detects sharks and sends instant alerts to lifeguards via the Optus network. On the imposterous, having conversations around this idea that we would like to turn self-doubt into a fuel, that you will have feelings where you doubt yourself and, you know, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? And when you have those feelings, that's actually a good sign. But your point about hunger and the drive and whatever you're actually hungry for, whether that's, you know, hunger to just do a better job or, or hunger to find that better idea, that that as a motivation doesn't necessarily have to be related to doubt or imposter syndrome or anything. Because if you're just focused, as you say, on achieving more, then that would be the fuel in itself. Um, I, I just want to ask you just on the idea of fraudulence and impostering and if you have any recollections or when was the last time you felt like you were a fraud? Well, I, I could say now. <laughs> you wouldn't but, be alone. But um, I, I can tell you when I didn't feel like I was a fraud, that might be easier. Yeah, I, I, that I, sounds I, more comfortable. Yeah, I think when you are a copywriter, an art director, and a creative team, you, you, if your creative director thinks your idea is great, it's great. You, you, you don't. I had no doubt, I had far more confidence in my abilities at the beginning of my career because I think you, you know absolutely fucking nothing and you're a bratty creative. Yeah, you don't know what's wrong. You, you have no idea what's right, but you've got, equally got no idea what's wrong. And, and I think as you, as you get more experienced, you learn what's wrong and that helps you get to what's right faster. But... You, you become aware of all this, um, what not to do. That can be a really bad thing, I think, because it can it can shut off opportunities that could have been great. So you've still got to balance that. You need to search, I suppose, for for the right in the things that appear to be wrong, which sounds a bit daft. But. Yeah, but I think that because uh, I'm interested in that, um, you, you've led agencies, successful creative departments, and there would have been times, you know, it's that idea that when you've got something great in the works and you've got something great out there and maybe you've got a good grief <laughs> coming in at the same time, it's this feeling of, hey, everything's okay. Was there a time where you felt that was going on with, you know, where, where you were and just the impact that that might have on a culture? I wouldn't say fear. I, I used to talk at MSC Sarch, I used to talk about harnessed chaos. 
And I loved, I loved the notion of everyone, everyone being busy um, and a lot going on. And it's like a giant, like you're riding this ball of chaos and that's, that's energizing the whole place and making things exciting. It, it was only when you'd finished something and looked back on it that you could really judge whether it was right or wrong. Uh, off, most of the time I'd look back on stuff and go, that could have been better. And it very rarely did I think we knocked that out of the park. There was always something that I just wish that had been slightly different or that had been better. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting that feeling, isn't it, that um, when when you do have something out there and you do actually like it, I wouldn't even describe that as relief, but there is this kind of like rarity to, to that feeling. I'm Deirdre Barrett. I'm a dream psychologist. I teach courses on dreams and do dream research. My doctorate is in clinical psychology and I'm editor-in-chief of their journal Dreaming. When Coors first approached me, they wanted to know if it would be possible to incubate an ad in a dream. I told them that there is a way, if you've got cooperative subjects, to do dream incubation and influence their dream content. The idea was that we try and place this surreal uh, cause ad into people's subconscious. We came up with stimulus film about clean mountain air, refreshing streams. Do I think planting dreams uh, into people is ethical? Um, uh. This thought that creative people, creatives need to um, see that they're making some difference or they're having some impact or they're, they're, they're contributing to something. And, and it might not be anything big, but that there's, it's beyond the idea of proving that you can create. It's actually creating um, for, for your own enjoyment or for your own fulfilment, whatever that is. And you've got a couple of projects that obviously are um, quite um, personal to you or, or things that you actually enjoy. And we can talk about wine and we'll talk about your book. From your perspective, what they mean to you? And, and do you think that having those things that you do for yourself that you actually enjoy and really helps you balance the business of creativity. I, I really like writing, I think, and you don't get to do much writing in the job anymore. Um, at least I wasn't doing much. I mean, I, I, I did when it, when it was a pitch and we might do a book or something, and I really mm. enjoyed that, T telling a story, if you like, that led mm. to an idea. And the pitch was, have you bought a copy? By the yes, way. I told you that. Yes, yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go again. You're listening to the podcast. Yeah. Of buying the book. That's the trade. Uh, well, uh, that's right. I started right, right. Yeah, ten years ago, I think I probably started working on that. The book that Ben has authored and that Michael promises us he's reading is *The Pitch*, a light-hearted exploration of what Australia's madmen and women really get up to. Its central character is the creative director of an advertising agency and the story revolves around a government pitch where the Prime Minister is threatened with defeat in the forthcoming election. The Prime Minister needs a climate change campaign that buys his government essential green votes. The Pitch by Ben Welsh is a story of winning hearts, losing a pitch and how research groups rule the world.
I wrote it in little snatches, little chapters, and then gradually it sort of came together. And I felt like I was never going to finish it if I didn't finish it. So right. the ending is quite not abrupt, but it could have been it could have been more. It could have been a longer book. Whether it would have been better, I don't know. I found it was like you know your computers. We're all busy on our computers now, and they're zooming. But when the screensaver is on, it's still on. And I found writing to be a bit like the computer with the screensaver being on because I was doing something related to what I do, but I had absolute freedom. Mm. Uh, nothing. And I, I did this yeah. years ago. Rod James and I made a short film for Tropfest with Ben Mendelssohn, no less. And when we finished it, we went, oh, who do we have to show? And we realised no one. And it, it like complete complete freedom as as an artist i suppose rather than as a commercial creative is how how i felt about that and i feel that about the wine blog it's it's an opportunity to to talk about life through wine and i love wine and um life is very interesting so so the two the two combine well and i and i i do love it when i get someone randomly just saying, oh, I love your blog. That And maybe there is a wine under 20 to be enjoyed with this episode of The Imposterous that we'll also um, tack on. Yeah, well, the 20 is becoming less and less. Yeah. I'm sorry. But, no, they do exist. Uh, We've just got to find them. And I promise to include one in the next one. Ben's blog, Wine Under 20, Life Over 50, is dedicated to finding decent wine under $20 a bottle. In other wine-producing countries, that wouldn't seem like such a challenge. Eight euros will get you something very reasonable in Spain, Italy or France. But in Australia, it's become increasingly hard to find a decent, interesting wine south of 20 bucks. I wanted to um, just ask you, um, just in conclusion really, because I, I think it is reference to a quote that... Um, that you've said that, um, you know, that you've referenced that it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit, where you think advertising is now. I was, I was joking with Stigo and Graham before that maybe the, the biggest imposter in advertising is the advertising industry potentially. Is, is but my question to you is, do you think the advertising industry is keeping up with, I guess, where creativity in, in general is going? And are we too worried about the credit that we get our agencies and less worried about keeping up? I think you have the title of your book there. This whole thing of ad- the, the biggest imposter is, adverti- is the advertising industry itself. That's brilliant. Um, the credit thing is ridiculous. You, you, get, you now have to put so many people on the list. And it is that the complexity of the campaign models that we we adopt but yeah at the same time i think it's very healthy that everyone in that agency should feel that they are responsible in some way for that work they really should and the client should never everyone that's touched it should it's, it's and and that should be true whether it's good or bad we tend to hog the limelight when it's good and then we try to hide it and blame blame others when it's bad but it's it's everyone's mm. it's everyone's baby. I don't think we give clients nearly enough recognition. No one can be bigger than the brand. Uh, I think our, our industry is, is guilty of that. I grew up on 
English campaigns that have been running for many years that were brilliant and they continue to be brilliant. And I don't, I, I think it was because whoever was working on it recognized that John Smith, Heineken, whatever, that, that is something precious. Guinness, uh, good things come to those who wait. That, that this is something precious. We're not going to try and change that. We're not going to make ourselves famous at the cost of the brand. We're going to continue to make that brand famous. And I, I think that's our job. Uh, I love the idea of not having anyone's name on the credit because, you know, you know the agency, you know the client, you know the film company. It shouldn't. You could just have those names. That that could be yeah. it. No individuals. And then you see that work in your book, and you know that you did it. But we are we are working. We are agents. We're agencies. We're working for those brands, and those brands mm. are more important than anything else. But we don't because we need to. At the same time, we need to build careers. Are we insecure? Are we narcissists? Are we imposters? I think that is a, a very good topic that we should explore, Ben. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us on The Imposterous. It's been great. Really, really enjoyed that chat. And um, if anyone's looking for a wine to enjoy, they would um, <laughs> do themselves a favour by checking out Wine Under 20, Life Over 50. Thanks, Ben. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thank you. It's because I love you. Thank you very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine, imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. Here you can also get in touch with us via email. you want to do, be what you want to be, yeah.